And lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and this can be found on page 71 in your Pew Bibles. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It took Peter Lanza almost a year before he responded to repeated requests for an interview. Peter has the unimaginable distinction of being the father of Adam Lanza, who in 2012 perpetrated one of the most horrific school shootings in our country's history at Sandy Hook Elementary. At the time of the shooting, Peter had not seen his son in more than two years because of the mental illness that caused Adam's increasing isolation. Prior to that, even after Peter and Adam's mother divorced, Peter had been a devoted and loving father, trying as hard as he could to connect with and understand his son. Although Adam was clearly different from other children, Peter remembers him as just a normal little weird kid. If people were hoping the interview would explain why Adam did what he did, they were disappointed According to Peter, nothing in his experience with his son had ever led him or Adam's mother or any of the doctors who had treated Adam for his mental health conditions to believe that Adam was capable of murder. Our need to explain the unexplainable is not new. In today's text from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' disciples are trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense, a terrible tragedy. A group of Jews from Galilee had gone to the temple in Jerusalem to make sacrifices to God. While they were worshiping, Pilate, essentially the governor, had them brutally murdered. It was a horrific bloodbath. It defied explanation, and it had Jesus' disciples worried. When we hear of the latest shooting, 
or the destruction wrought by a natural disaster or a friend who has received a terrible diagnosis, we can't help it. We worry. For hours or even days, normal life stops as we absorb the horror of these events and as we hunger for answers to the inevitable questions. Why did it happen? Why did it happen to those people? And most importantly, what can I do to prevent something like that from happening to me or the people I love? In such moments, what we really like is a formula that explains it. We want a way to make sense of it all. We want a reason, which is why we look at people who suffer and try to figure out what they did to deserve it. Surely, somehow, the person in poverty, the woman in jail, the man who is sick, the couple whose marriage failed, the teenager who's being bullied, surely each of them did something to cause their suffering. Surely we can find a reason for their pain. And if that person who is suffering happens to be us, we can't help but wonder, what did I do wrong? Somewhere along the way, in our attempts to make sense of the things in life that don't make sense, we've all absorbed the message that people get what they deserve. Susie grew up a young white woman in Florida in the 1950s and 60s. She wasn't really aware of the implications of the civil rights movement, but she knew that something needed to change. Whenever she heard the racial slurs and jokes, and she heard plenty, she knew deep down they were wrong. And she did what she could to distance herself from the hate and prejudice Growing up, she was very close to her grandparents, especially her grandfather. Her own father died when she was just six years old, and her grandfather was an important figure in her life and in the town they lived in. He was the postmaster general and a veteran of the First World War. She spent nearly every weekend with her grandparents at their house, and she remembers on Saturday mornings while they were eating breakfast, there would almost always be a knock at the back door. Her grandfather would answer and greet the two or three black men who stood on the stoop. He'd give them ten cups of coffee and send them out in the yard to do odd jobs, after which he would pay them from the change in his pockets. On Sunday mornings, Susie's grandmother would put a chicken in the oven and they would go down to the Methodist church for services. Years later, when Susie was grown and living in a different town, her grandfather had a heart attack and died suddenly. She never got to say goodbye to him or to thank him for what he had done for her, for the people in their town, for all those men who would come to his back door on Saturday mornings. After the funeral, Susie took her grandmother back to the house, and while they were taking their coats off and settling in, a family friend came out of a back room and said, Edna, I've taken care of Dwight's things. Susie didn't think much of it at the time, but later that day she asked her mother what the man was talking about. 
Well, it must have been his robes, her mother said. Robes? Susie said. Yes, replied her mother. His clan robes. Jesus knows exactly what his disciples are hoping for. And God knows we want a formula that makes sense of the world. And the formula we most often choose says that sin causes suffering and righteousness yields blessings. God knows that such formulas ultimately do nothing to satisfy our hunger. And when the disciples bring such a formula to Jesus, he is clear that is not the way God works. There is no causality between sin and suffering, between righteousness and blessing. You want to know if those Galileans suffered because they were worse sinners than the rest of you, right? Jesus asks his disciples. You want to know if that's why they died? Well, the answer is no. To drive home the point, he references another disaster, a tower that fell and killed 18 people, and he makes clear they didn't deserve that fate either. That is not the way God works, Jesus says. Real life is messy and resists simple formulas. And real people, like Susie's grandfather, like you, like me, are never all good or all bad. We are all sinners, no better or worse than the person next to us in worship, at a stoplight, on the street, We may hunger for a simple explanation to life's most difficult questions, but life, even life with God in it, is messy and complicated. Now, just when this might be sinking in for the disciples, Jesus adds one more zinger. Unless you repent, you will all perish just like They did. It isn't a particularly sympathetic response from Jesus, is it? I'm not sure why we ever expect sympathy from Jesus. He tends to prove much better at telling us the truth. And the truth is, we're all going to die. We will all perish in the end, no matter how good or bad we think we are. And once we accept that... Once we resign ourselves to the fact that our hunger for answers will never be completely satisfied, then instead of seeking out answers and formulas, we can focus on a different question. What will we do with the time we have left? One of my heroes is a man named Gregory Boyle. He's a Catholic priest who has worked for decades in the projects of Los Angeles, which were filled with gang members when he got there. Years ago, he was invited to go on the Dr. Phil show. The entire show was devoted to Homeboy Industries, the nonprofit that Boyle created to help people who are ready to leave the gang life. Boyle worked closely with Dr. Phil's producers 
trying to tone down some of the wilder ideas they had for the show. But when he walked out on the set in front of a live audience, he was horrified to see on one side a beautiful mahogany coffin and on the other a perfect replica of a jail cell. Then out onto the stage came teenagers who had been flown in for the show, kids drifting perilously close to gang involvement. Dr. Phil figuratively grabbed them by the lapels and in front of their distraught mothers said, don't you see that your choice will lead only to here or here, to death or to prison? One by one, these kids were brought out until finally Boyle couldn't stand it one more minute. Phil, he said, these kids know this. They know it better than we do. They know this will end in death or in prison. They don't care. Dr. Phil thought maybe he could save a few of these kids by giving them more information about the consequences of their actions. But Boyle has learned that such information is irrelevant. He knows that those who make a change do so not because they finally read the right article or go to a Bible study or hear the truth from Dr. Phil. Boyle knows it isn't information that changes people. It is experiences. And usually, it's an experience of grief or suffering so profound that they are forced to confront their own mortality in a whole new way, something that leads to what Jesus calls repentance. Now, repentance is a churchy word, And we use it a lot during Lent. In our desire for simplicity, we want to make repentance about sins with a lowercase s. The things we do or don't do that we know are wrong, or the habits that we've gotten into that we know deep down aren't good for us or for others. But when Jesus talks about repentance, he's talking about turning away from sin with a capital S, which is to say all the ways we separate ourselves from God. And the primary thing we do to separate ourselves from God is to act like we are in control. As if living in a certain way or achieving certain things means our lives are going to turn out just how we want them to. As much as anything else, Jesus calls us to repent from that kind of either-or thinking and to accept that a life with God is full of messy complexities that cannot be easily explained or reduced to a simple formula. When Jesus talks to his disciples about this, he is echoing the words we heard from Isaiah who called God's people to quit wasting their money and time on things that offer fleeting satisfaction. He's speaking to God's people in exile, people who are lost and hungry and longing for meaning and purpose. Isaiah tells them, turn back to God, who feeds us with food beyond our imaginings and invites us into a way of life that is not simple 
or formulaic, but rich and complex and meaningful, even when the meaning is not always clear. For God's ways are not our ways, nor are God's thoughts our thoughts. So Lent, this period of time before Easter, is about repentance, admitting that we are lost, that we are hungry, and that God is ready to show us the way home and feed us at God's table. But Lent is more than this predictable season that comes around at this time every year. For Lent shows up, often unexpectedly, in every one of our lives. Lent is the addiction we cannot seem to overcome that threatens everything. Lent is the unexpected and unpredictable tragedy. Lent is the doctor who holds the test results in his hand and says, I am so sorry. The prognosis isn't good. Lent is the loss of the relationship we thought would be forever. No matter when or how it comes, Lent throws us into the wilderness where what we thought we knew fails to hold true, and when we hunger and thirst for understanding and connection and hope. Years ago, Gregory Boyle was diagnosed with leukemia, and he claims it was one of the most grace-filled experiences of his life. Once you face your mortality, he says, you realize there are many worse things than death. Perhaps the worst of all is a life lived only for ourselves, a life disconnected from God and from the people God loves and calls us to love. Kids who join gangs, Boyle says, suffer from what he calls a lethal absence of hope. If a person has no hope that things can or will get better, What does it matter if he ends up in a coffin or a jail cell? Boyle has learned that kids who join gangs do so not because their moral compass is out of whack, but because they have nothing to live for. They are seeking some kind of connection, and they cannot imagine they have anything worth offering this world. The only cure for such apathy, Boyle says, is hope. And the only way to offer hope to those who have no hope is to surround them with people who show up and pay attention, who tell them and show them as many times as it takes that they matter. People like the gardener in the parable Jesus tells. The gardener who speaks up for that fig tree that will bear no fruit. The gardener who knows that with the right care and attention, there is a chance it can still thrive. Cut it down, the owner says. It is worthless. No, the gardener says. Wait a little longer. Let me see if I can turn things around. The gardener reminds us, 
We are not the sum of our successes and failures. We are not the product of whatever good or bad we have done. Our worth is not earned. It is inherent, conferred upon us by our Creator. That is true for everyone. For everyone. For Peter Lanza and Adam Lanza. For Susie's grandfather. For kids who see no future other than to join a gang. For all of us. For everyone. We are all children of God, messy and complicated and broken. We are all sinners in need of repentance, and every one of us has exactly what we need, not later, once we get it figured out, but right now, today. We have what we need to love and be loved in this messy and complicated and broken and beautiful and hope-filled world where God has chosen to dwell with us. Amen.